BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And here's to season three of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Beverly Hills, California. Nestled within the sprawling metropolis of Los Angeles, Beverly Hills has become synonymous with luxury, glamour, and opulence. Its origins, however, paint a different picture. Like most of Southern California, the area was originally established as a Spanish rancho. It was when oil was discovered in the area in 1900 that the transformation began and the area experienced rapid growth. Oil magnate Henry E. Huntington and prominent banker Burton Green bought a portion of the land in 1907 with the intention of creating an exclusive enclave for the wealthy. Beverly Hills was born, and by the 1920s, its Mediterranean-inspired paradise became a haven for the rich and famous. This time period also marked the establishment of the iconic pink Beverly Hills Hotel. As the years progressed, Beverly Hills solidified its reputation as a playground for the elite, attracting moguls, celebrities, and dignitaries from around the world. World-famous Rodeo Drive emerged as a shopping mecca for those who demanded luxury and a must-see tourist location for window shopping and celebrity sightings. The city's enduring allure has made it a lasting symbol of luxury and aspiration. But in 1989, Beverly Hills drew tourists and locals alike after it was revealed that sometimes aspiring to luxury can have deadly consequences. At 11.47 p.m. on Sunday, August 20, 1989, the Beverly Hills Police Department received a 911 call from Lyle Menendez. Sobbing uncontrollably, he was hard to understand, but was eventually able to get out that his parents had been shot. What's the problem? What's the problem? What's the problem? Sorry, kill my parents. Pardon me? Sorry, What? Who? Are they still there? Yeah. The people? No, no, no. Were they shot? Were they shot? Yes. They were shot? Yes. What happened? What happened? Who shot who? Home and found who shot. <laughs> my mom and dad. Who is the person that was shot? My mom and my dad. Your mom and dad? My mom and dad. Okay, hold on a second. <laughs> okay, we're on our way over there with an the ambulance. Okay, I gotta go. 
Because of the way Lyle hung up the phone, his hysteria during the 911 call, and his inability to tell police one way or the other if the shooters were still in the house, police were unsure if it was safe to enter or if the boys were being held hostage. So that's why, when police arrived, they told the boys to come out the front door. Lyle and his brother Eric ran screaming from the house toward police and collapsed on the front lawn, crying. The scene of the crime was a rental property. The Menendez family was staying there while their own home in rural Calabasas was being renovated. Calabasas is in the San Fernando Valley, and it's about 15 to 20 miles northwest of Beverly Hills. Kath, this was a six-bedroom, eight-bath, 9,000-square-foot rental property. And it was actually valued at three times their Calabasas home. And it doesn't surprise me being in Beverly Hills versus Calabasas, but still. I know. With two kids, 9,000 square feet. Inside the house, police found the bodies of 45-year-old Jose Menendez and his 47-year-old wife, Kitty. Both had been shot multiple times with shotguns, and police described the scene as violent and gruesome. Jose was found in the den and had been shot at close range in the head and body multiple times. It looked to investigators like Kitty had attempted to flee her attackers, and her body was found several feet away from her husband. She was also shot numerous times, including in the face, chest, and arm. The state of the room indicated there had been a violent struggle with the perpetrators, with furniture overturned and belongings scattered all over. Jose and Kitty were pronounced dead at the scene. Jose Menendez had immigrated with his family from Cuba during high school and settled in Pennsylvania. He attended Southern Illinois University after receiving a swimming scholarship. Kitty's actual name was Mary Louise. Kitty was a nickname given to her as a young girl, and she was an Illinois native. She met Jose when they were both students at Southern Illinois University. Jose and Kitty married in 1963, and after living in New York and New Jersey for a time, Jose built a successful career in the entertainment industry. In 1987, he moved the family, which now included sons Lyle and Eric, out to California. Kath, this is when the Menendez family went from being considered high income to wealthy. Jose took the job as CEO and chairman of Live Entertainment, a company that at the time was involved in the production and distribution of home videos and music. Kitty didn't work outside the home, but was well-known in Beverly Hills social circles. Those who knew Jose and Kitty were shocked by their senseless murders and rallied around their sons, Lyle and Eric. Lyle had graduated from Princeton Day School in 1986. This is a K-12 private school in New Jersey and was a standout tennis player. After taking a year off to work on his tennis skills, he enrolled in Princeton University, where he was a member of the men's tennis team. Eric attended Beverly Hills High School after the family moved to the city in 1987. And Kath, this was a case when they first moved to Calabasas, he went to Calabasas High School. But when they moved for the renovations, that's too far to commute. So for his senior year, he went to Beverly Hills High. I can't imagine how hard that is to do to be a senior at a new school. That would be hard moving twice in two years, essentially. Yeah, that too. Like his brother Lyle, Eric was a standout tennis player. And he was also interested in acting, and he took part in all of the school's drama productions during his senior year. Eric was also interested in writing, and about a year before his high school graduation, he and his friend Craig Signorelli wrote a 66-page screenplay that Kitty Menendez typed up for them. Eric planned to attend UCLA in the fall of 1989. 
The police investigation into Jose and Kitty's murders was complicated from the start due to the high-profile nature of the victims and the fact that it was being played out on an international stage. At the time, Beverly Hills Police handled an average of two murders per year and had only two detectives assigned to robbery and homicide cases. Due to the nature of the murders, most of the department's 15 detectives were assigned to the Menendez case. At the crime scene, detectives collected evidence, took photographs, and removed financial records and documents to provide possible insight into whether the family's finances played a role in the murders. While the killers, and police said there were two, picked up the shell casings before leaving the house after the murders, there was a single shell casing left behind. Investigators did find shotgun wadding, which is the material expended with the shells, at the scene. A neighbor reported during a police interview that they heard what could have been shots at the Menendez home around 10 p.m. that evening. Lyle and Eric were interviewed by investigators on the night of the killings. They said they had gone to the movies, intending to see the new James Bond movie, Licensed to Kill, but it was sold out, so instead they went to see Batman. Then they went to a Taste of L.A. food festival in Santa Monica, which is about 15 to 20 minutes west of Beverly Hills. The two brothers then tried to meet up with one of Lyle's friends at the Cheesecake Factory after they left the Taste of L.A., but weren't able to connect with him. Lyle and Eric then returned home shortly before they made the 911 call at almost midnight. The brothers told police that when they arrived home, they found the driveway gate unlocked and the front door wide open. Now, Kath, I read somewhere that it was not unusual for the front door to be unlocked. Of course, naturally, it was not wide open, but it was very unusual for the driveway gate to be unlocked. In the den, the brothers found their parents' bodies, with their mother being a short distance away from their father. During the ensuing investigation, Lyle told detectives that he thought the killings might be business-related, intimating it was a mafia hit. As part of Jose's job in the entertainment industry, he sometimes had to negotiate with some business associates who had questionable backgrounds. For example, while representing live entertainment in the acquisition of another company, it came to light that the company owner was believed to be a major distributor of X-rated movies with ties to the mob. In another instance, the owner of a different company Jose was looking to acquire had been convicted of extortion a year prior to the murders. And a little known fact about the San Fernando Valley, especially back in the late 80s, early 90s, well, actually, probably even longer than that, huh? Right, probably. It was a major site for porn. Right. Because you could get the houses much more cheaply than in Los Angeles. And there weren't many houses back then. There were large warehouses back then that could be used very easily for the porn industry. And even the houses weren't as close together as they are in so many of the other tract homes that you see in Southern California. Now they are, but back then they weren't. Right. And I know that in the 90s, there was a big crackdown because people were getting sick of it. But the question is, did that cut down on your salary? <laughs> <laughs> no, I never earned much. I wasn't that good. <laughs> Lyle and Eric immediately hired bodyguards after their parents' murders because they were scared that they might be next and wanted 24-hour protection. Lyle told his girlfriend and his bodyguard that either the Colombian cartel or the mafia was responsible for his parents' murders. After about a week, Lyle terminated the round-the-clock protection 
telling police detectives that his uncle had reached a deal with the mafia and he was no longer in danger. Um, how does that exactly work? I don't have any idea. Can you call 411 and be like, hi, can I get the mafia's number? (laughs) And I could find nowhere that the police questioned this. I'm sure they did. I know. That's what I'm just saying. I couldn't find anywhere that they were like, huh, let's look into your uncle now. What kind of mob ties does he have? Right. Despite no longer feeling like he was in danger after his uncle reached a detente with the mafia, Lyle hired a bodyguard for his protection when he returned to Princeton several weeks later. It also appeared to police that the shotgun overkill at the crime scene simulated a gangland hit. Following Lyle's suggestion that the slaughter of his parents might be mafia-related, the police began to investigate that lead. Autopsies were conducted by Dr. Erwin Golden, a deputy medical examiner for Los Angeles County. The autopsies confirmed that both victims had been shot multiple times by a 12-gauge shotgun. Dr. Golden found six wounds on Jose's body. He pointed out that it did not mean Jose was shot six times, as had been widely reported, but rather the number included exit wounds as well. Jose was shot in the back of his head, his upper arm, and his right forearm, but the medical examiner did not know the order in which the shots were fired. However, the head wound would have been the fatal shot as the gun was placed directly against Jose's head when it was fired. Kitty Menendez had 10 documented wounds, again, not the number of times she was shot as was reported. She had several gunshot wounds to her left and right cheeks, her eye, nose, and leg. Dr. Golden believed that the shotgun was placed directly on her left cheek when it was fired. As investigators looked into the Menendez parents' finances, They learned that Lyle and Eric would receive a substantial inheritance from their parents' estate. At the time of his death, Jose was earning over a million dollars a year. And we know you can't help but convert this into $2023, so (laughs) go ahead. Well, I failed this last time, so I really have to make do. Right. (laughs) So $1 million in 1989 is the equivalent of $2.5 million today. The Menendez's combined property and stock assets amounted to more than $7 million, which is $17 million today. And the very first payouts the brothers received, which was relatively quickly, was from one of Jose's life insurance policies, from which the brothers received more than $300,000 each, which today would be $750,000. Police noted that within days after the murders of their parents, Lyle and Eric began making expensive and indulgent purchases. Lyle bought a Porsche 911 Carrera Cabriolet, three Rolex watches, a townhouse in Princeton, New Jersey, and a small cafe specializing in spicy chicken wings near the university that was a favorite when he went to school there. Kath, if you came into a bunch of money, would you buy that grocery store in San Diego where they declined your your check? (laughs) Yeah. In college, when they rejected my check Uh and chased me into the parking lot to get groceries, I would go buy that Safeway. (laughs) Take that. Exactly. (laughs) Now, Eric wasn't quite as extravagant with the car. He bought a Jeep Wrangler and he hired a full-time tennis coach competing in a series of tournaments in Israel. The brothers also bought adjoining condominiums in nearby Marina del Rey, This is along the coast of Los Angeles, dined at some of Los Angeles's most popular restaurants, therefore expensive, bought designer clothes and went on trips to London and the Caribbean. Both brothers dropped out of college in the weeks following their parents' deaths. While the police were working tirelessly to solve the murders, 
Lyle and Eric were not suspects. In fact, neither was tested for gunshot residue the night of the murders. However, this conspicuous consumption caught the attention of the detectives. I have to say, money must have gone further then because $750,000 could not buy you all of those things in California today. Well, I know the Porsche he bought for $60,000 and now it's $175,000. But I'm assuming some of it, like the condominiums, they probably have mortgages for it and maybe just put a down payment on it. That's a good point. In March of 1990, more than six months after Jose and Kitty Menendez were gunned down in their homes, 22-year-old Lyle Menendez was arrested for murdering his parents. Younger brother Eric, then 19, was in Tel Aviv, Israel, playing in a tennis tournament. After Beverly Hills police announced their intentions to arrest him, Eric agreed to return to Los Angeles and was arrested when he landed. Police admitted that they had considered the brothers suspects for some time, but had only recently found the glue that brought the case together. The glue, it turns out, consisted of recorded conversations that occurred after the murders between the brothers and their psychotherapist, Dr. L. Jerome Ozeal. The recordings were initially brought to the attention of law enforcement when Dr. Ozeal's mistress, Judalon Smith reported the recordings to the police. I have to tell you, Kath, reading through this, some of these names stuck out more than others. And Judalon was definitely one of those. I remember when we decided to do the Menendez case and you're like, Judalon Smith, like you immediately blurted her name out. I was like, how do you remember that? That's crazy. No idea. Don't remember anybody else, even what the boys' names were. I'm just kidding. But (laughs) Judalon... I don't know what it was that stuck. Yeah. And there were so many things about this case. And honestly, we are painting with a broad brush in this podcast. Yes. Otherwise, this would be a three hour podcast. Oh, my God. There's so much to this story. But yes, I agree with you. There are some names that are like embedded in your brain. Right. Within a week of Judalon Smith reporting that Dr. Ozeal had recordings of the Menendez brothers, a felony complaint was filed in Superior Court against both of them. So now we have to back up and tell you who Dr. Ozeal is. Eric began seeing Dr. Ozeal in 1988. Now, this is one year before his parents were killed. Eric had been charged with two residential burglaries in the Calabasas area. And at the suggestion of his then criminal attorney, Eric began therapy in an attempt to show the court that he was dealing with the personal issues that led him to commit the burglaries. Dr. Ozeal was his therapist. Just two months after Jose and Kitty Menendez were killed, Eric was interviewed by Beverly Hills police detective Les Zoller. Detective Zoller told Eric that he'd heard rumors that the brothers weren't getting along. It was his understanding that Eric was complaining that Lyle was spending too much money and acting just like their father. Eric was upset after this interview with the detective and called Dr. Ozeal desperate to talk to him. During Eric's appointment, which was October 31st, And just two months after his parents were killed, he told Dr. Ozeal that he and his brother killed their parents. Eric told Dr. Ozeal about a movie he had seen that inspired the killing. Now, Kath, I believe this was Billionaire. What is it? Billionaire Billionaire Boys Boys Club. Yes. I believe it's the same thing. I read it somewhere, 
But then when you get into other documents, it didn't mention it. It just said a movie. Right. But this was a miniseries that had appeared about a true story that happened in Los Angeles about some young men who wanted to be very wealthy and were willing to come up with schemes to get there and were not averse to committing crimes and murder to get what they wanted. And these boys came from privileged families. They did. In that October session, Eric told Dr. Ozeal he wanted his father dead because his father was controlling and tyrannical and emotionally abusive. He and Lyle didn't want to kill their mother, but they couldn't think of a way not to kill her if they killed their father. They didn't want to witness and their mother was depressed and had attempted suicide in the past. So they essentially believed that maybe she wanted to be dead anyway. They didn't believe she could survive without the father. That's kind of harsh. Very harsh. At this point, Dr. Ozeal suggested that he call Lyle so that the two of them could talk to Dr. Ozeal together. While they waited for Lyle, Eric continued telling Dr. Ozeal what had happened. Two days before their parents' murders, Eric and Lyle tried to purchase guns at several different stores, the first in Los Angeles. After learning that handguns could not be purchased immediately, they drove from Los Angeles to San Diego, where they bought two 12-gauge shotguns using fake IDs and providing non-existent addresses. And after being told that the birdshot ammunition that they loaded into their new guns was useless for stopping a person, Eric and Lyle purchased buckshot, which was much more deadly. Eric also told Dr. Ozeal that after they killed their parents, they had been very careful about leaving no evidence behind, including taking the shotgun shell casings. Then the brothers drove to Mulholland Drive, where they threw the shotguns in a canyon. Then they threw their blood-spattered clothes into a dumpster behind a gas station before returning home and calling police. When Lyle arrived at the office, Eric told him that he had told Dr. Ozeal that they had killed their parents. Lyle was enraged and began yelling at Eric in Dr. Ozeal's presence. I can't believe you did this. I can't believe you told him. I don't even have a brother now. I can get rid of you for this. I hope you realize what we're going to have to do. We've got to kill him and anyone associated with him. Dr. Ozeal was now not only concerned for his safety and the safety of his family, but also the safety of his mistress, Judalon Smith. He was also worried about how to proceed. Being unsure as to his ethical obligations as a therapist, He consulted several people for advice without revealing what had happened. Ultimately, he decided that the best way to protect himself was to continue to meet with the brothers and convince them that he was an ally. He saw them once in October, twice in November, and once in December. He began dictating notes after each session, allegedly for his own safety, and he also recorded the December session. Fast forward The day after Judalon and Dr. Ozeal break up, Judalon goes to the police and tells them that the Menendez brothers confessed to Dr. Ozeal. A woman scorned. Oh, yeah. Hell hath no fury. That's for sure. I actually read an article that I wish I could remember the title. It was something like... Keep it in your pants so your mistress doesn't narc on you. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was it was something like the other woman is a serious matter or something like that. (laughs) And it was about lovely Judalon. Anyway, so she goes to the police and she says, hey, I was dating this Dr. Ozeal and the Menendez brothers confessed to murdering their parents. And that was because he told her, correct? Correct. He told her and he told his wife. At the same time. (laughs) (laughs) 
I don't think it was during the same conversation. <laughs> However, but you don't been. know that. I don't know that for sure. So the police immediately issued a warrant for Dr. Ozeal's house and office and found the tapes. Within a week of executing the search warrant and finding these tapes and listening to the tapes, obviously, the complaint was filed against the Menendez brothers. Lyle and Eric Menendez were charged with two counts of murder while lying in wait and one count of conspiracy to commit murder. The brothers were being tried together and the state was seeking the death penalty. Judge Stanley Weisberg was assigned to the case and made the decision to impanel two juries, one for each brother, even though the boys were being tried together. You know what, Kathy? I read in an article that they pulled all of the potential jurors from the San Fernando Valley. Lyle and Eric came from a very large family. One of their cousins was actually called for jury duty. Oh, my God. And he was like, of the millions of people who could have been called for this case, I'm here. Right. (laughs) Needless to say, he was dismissed. That is too funny. Hey, who needs to learn to drive? Seriously, who needs to learn to drive? (laughs) (laughs) Or which friend of yours needs to learn to drive so they'll stop using you as their personal rideshare service? But without the tips. (laughs) (laughs) If you live in the Southern California counties of Los Angeles and Orange, Premium Driving School can help. Their certified instructors will help you pass your permit test, learn how to drive and get your license. And you'll be learning in a late model Mini Cooper. So that's fun. That's the best part. Premium Driving School offers a number of packages, including behind-the-wheel driving lesson packages for teens and adults and refresher driving skills lessons for mature and senior drivers. Maybe I should have Dick and Laura go there. (laughs) (laughs) Those are Kathy's parents, and I think you're actually right. (laughs) They could use it. (laughs) Lessons are available seven days a week and are based on each person's individual skill and ability level. Premium Driving School is here to help you learn how to drive and become a confident and safe driver, and it has a five-star Google rating. For more information, go to their website, learntodrivetoday.com. Learn, the number two, drivetoday.com. And with the code KILLERD, they'll give you a 10% discount on your lessons. Trial began on Tuesday, July 20th, 1993. At the time, Lyle was 25 and Eric was 22 and had been held in custody for three years since their arrest. The defense theory of what happened was straightforward. Neither Eric nor Lyle denied the shooting at trial, which was big news. Instead, the crime was manslaughter, not murder. The defense said the killings occurred in an act of self-defense after a lifetime of physical and sexual abuse from their parents. The defense contended that the sexual abuse by their father began when the brothers were just children, and along with the sexual abuse, there were death threats should the abuse ever be disclosed. Thus, the defense argued this was an act of self-defense warranting a manslaughter conviction instead of murder. And manslaughter is an unlawful killing without malice and brings far less time rather than murder one, which is an intentional premeditated killing with malice. Jurors had to decide, were Eric and Lyle victims of sexual abuse? And did the sexual abuse leave them with a state of mind that left them in fear of immediate danger, even if the fear was unreasonable? The prosecution, however, contended that Lyle and Eric were lying or exaggerating about the sexual abuse. 
They killed their parents not in self-defense, as asserted, but rather to inherit their parents' money. According to the brothers' testimony at trial, the day before their murders, Jose, Kitty, Eric, and Lyle went on a planned fishing trip together. Despite their alleged fear of their parents, Eric and Lyle left their new shotguns at home because they were too large to conceal. However, the trip was uneventful, and the family returned home late that evening. Eric testified that Jose came to Eric's room that night and pounded on his door. Eric refused to open it because he was afraid, and his father eventually left. The next morning was August 20th, the day of the murders. Lyle called a friend, Perry Berman, and talked about getting together that evening. Berman made plans with Lyle to meet the brothers at the Taste of LA Food Festival after Eric and Lyle went to see Batman. Lyle said the movie would end around 9 or 9.30 that evening, but Eric and Lyle never went to see the movie, and they never turned up at the festival to meet Berman. Eric testified that Lyle had an argument with Jose and Kitty about the brothers' plan to go out for the evening. After the argument, their father told Eric to go to his room. Allegedly fearing that his father wanted to have sex with him, Eric nevertheless complied and went up the stairs, but he lingered to listen to Lyle tell their dad, you're not going to touch Eric. You're not going to touch my little brother. You are never going to touch him again. As it turned out, Eric revealed to Lyle that their father had not stopped molesting him, and Kath's molestation began when Eric was six. And Kath, part of the argument, I think, or part of Eric's frustration was that he was looking forward to going to UCLA and he was assuming that he was going to live on campus and get away from his parents. And his parents recently said, no, no, you're living at home. He must have been devastated. He was devastated. Lyle and Jose then got into a screaming match. And according to Eric, his mom and dad then went into the den and closed the doors. Lyle went up the stairs where Eric testified that he told Lyle, I'm not going to my room tonight. I can't let him come in my room. I can't let this happen. He further testified that Lyle told him not to worry about that. According to Eric's testimony, Lyle was pale and shaking when Lyle said, it's happening now. They were waiting for me to get home and it's happening now. According to both boys' testimony, they believed their father was going to kill them that night. Jose and Kitty remained in the den with the television set on. Court records are unclear as to how much time elapsed between the final confrontation with Lyle and the killings, but it was enough time for Eric and Lyle to separate. Eric went to his bedroom where he retrieved his new shotgun from his closet. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. 
He then went back downstairs out to the car. He removed the birdshot ammunition from his gun and replaced it with buckshot. Lyle rejoined him at the car where Lyle, too, began loading his shotgun. At around 10 p.m., Eric and Lyle's parents were unarmed in the den watching television and eating ice cream. Lyle and Eric burst through the doors of the den and fired 13 to 15 shotgun blasts at their parents. Eric testified that he thought his father was standing, but also said, as soon as I burst through the doors, as soon as I saw them, I just immediately started firing. I didn't stop and look around. I just started firing. And Kath, one of the things he apparently told Dr. Ozeal was that he knew he had to do it quickly or he'd lose his nerve. Before the massacre was over, Eric and Lyle left the house and went to the car where Lyle reloaded. They returned to the house where Lyle fired one more shot. The final shot was apparently fired while Kitty was still alive, and the muzzle of the shotgun was placed in direct contact with her cheek. Which is, of course, what the autopsy said. Exactly. In an effort to support the defense theory, both Lyle and Eric testified about their fear of their parents due to a lifelong pattern of abuse. Lyle testified that his father had sexually molested him when he was between the ages of six and eight. Eric testified that he had been molested since the age of six, and it continued until his father's death. Additionally, Eric testified that his mother and father had been physically and psychologically abusive to Lyle and him throughout their entire lives. Defense attorneys called over 30 witnesses that included many family members, close friends, and a variety of coaches and teachers who testified about specific incidences of physical and mental abuse they saw the brothers suffer at the hands of their parents, ranging from mocking and public humiliation to physical assaults on the boys. Two specific witnesses stood out. The brother's older cousin, Diane Vandermolen, testified that when she was 16 years old, she stayed at the Menendez home for the summer. And on one of those nights, Lyle, who was only eight at the time, came into her bedroom and asked if he could sleep with her. He was scared to sleep in his own room because his father was touching his genitals and forcing Lyle to touch his dad as well. Diane told Kitty, who angrily dragged Lyle upstairs by the arm. Lyle and Eric's cousin, Andy Cano, testified at trial that when Eric was only 13 years old, Eric swore Andy to secrecy before telling him that his father, Jose, was massaging his genitals, and he asked if Andy's father did the same thing. Andy also said that Eric had referenced the sexual abuse by his father several times after this initial conversation. And... Jurors heard about a chilling rule in the Menendez home. When Jose Menendez was in the bedroom with one of the boys, no one was allowed to walk down the hallway past the bedrooms. How did no one else in the family intervene? And I know 30 years later, super easy for me to say this. It is. If you heard that about somebody, wouldn't you? But I mean, like, we don't know how much other people knew. So Andy was also close in age to Eric. You know how your cousins are sort of your first best friends? No. Well, they are. <laughs> we didn't grow up with our cousins. <laughs> I know. I have awesome cousins in Chicago and California. But anyway, Andy has this information and just keeps a secret. But I don't know how much the other adults thought about it. 
You know what? As you're talking, I realized I was thinking that this rule was known by all, but really it was probably just known by Andy. Exactly. Or the boys. Prior to trial, Dr. Ozeal and the defense fought to keep the tapes of therapy sessions with Lyle and Eric from being admitted, arguing they were protected under psychotherapist-patient confidentiality laws. Let me pipe in real quick, Kath. It was in March of 1990 when Judalon went and chatted with the cops about these things. Once the tapes were seized and the boys were arrested, Dr. Ozeal immediately filed a petition. This all happened with literally in like a two week time frame where he filed a petition saying, you can't use my tapes, they're privileged. And then the defense attorneys joined him in that motion. Judge Weisberg originally ruled that the tapes containing the doctor's notes and the December session with the brothers were admissible for two reasons. One was that threats made to Dr. Ozeal allowed him to reveal the content of the communications. Remember, Lyle had said that they needed to get rid of Dr. Ozeal, his family, and so on. Right. And number two, Dr. Ozeal broke the confidentiality by telling his wife and girlfriend. And this is an issue Kathy and I've talked about several times, which is, Just because he broke confidentiality, why did Lyle and Eric lose their confidentiality in total? But it was more like, okay, these ladies, your wife and your girlfriend who you told about these tapes, were not your agents. Again, though, how did Lyle and Eric lose the right to confidentiality? There was a big debate on that. And this actually went up to the Supreme Court. That's what I'm saying. You and I discussed this. Like, at no point does it actually address the fact that they had no reason for Eric and Lyle to do it. Yeah. But they're basically saying, go back and see issue number one, which is they threatened him. That's how I feel. That's kind of honestly how I felt things were written. But they're saying Judalon Smith was told this information and she had no obligation to maintain a privilege. Like you broke the privilege by telling somebody else. But anyway, so, I mean, this went all the way to the Supreme Court, as you know. Yes. And now everyone else does, too. (laughs) The California Supreme Court ultimately ruled that the doctor's notes from the first two sessions were admissible. This is the one at the end of October on Halloween and November 2nd. So when the prosecution called Dr. Ozeal to the stand, he testified about the contents of those two meetings. Defense attorney Leslie Abramson cross-examined Dr. Ozeal for six days and attacked his credibility. She questioned, why did he not inform the police that the brothers threatened him? This, of course, as we know, didn't become public until his now scorned ex-mistress went to the cops. Abramson also brought up allegations by Judalon Smith and other patients that he was manipulative and coerced female patients into having sex. The prosecution did not back down from their assertion that the brothers were murderers and during closing arguments told the jury, if you believe in the sexual abuse that happened... That does not mean the defendants are not guilty of murder because they are two separate things. We do not execute child molesters in California, and these defendants cannot execute them either. Vigilanteism is something we cannot tolerate because then what happens? What if you decide your neighbor is a child molester and you go kill your neighbor? Six months after trial began, and after 21 days of deliberations, on January 13, 1994, the jury for Eric Menendez reported it could not reach a verdict and a mistrial was declared. It was almost two weeks later when the jury for Lyle Menendez also declared themselves deadlocked and another mistrial was declared. Prosecutors immediately promised to retry both brothers for their parents' murders. And Kath, as you know, there was a two-week difference in the jury verdicts because of the Northridge earthquake. 
Right. And I want to say there was damage to the Van Nuys courthouse where this was being held. Yes. And they had to take a bit of a break and then they came back and reconvened their jury. Well, um, actually, they brought in trailers like schools do. Oh, I forgot about that. Because they were afraid asbestos had been shaken loose. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure it had. Oh, God, yes. That was a really scary earthquake. This earthquake was 6.7 on the Richter scale. I like to joke, Californians don't get out of bed for anything under a 6.0 <laughs> because we're used to it-ish. But every point you go up after that is exponentially more magnitude. And what was different about this quake is that quakes usually last for like three to five seconds. Right. This lasted for 20 seconds. This was such a long and terrifying earthquake. It was ridiculous. And I was afraid of earthquakes. I actually gave a persuasive speech in a college class on what to do in the event of an earthquake. Was run one of the things? Like was drink under the table one of the yeah. things? I mean, but I've always been terrified of earthquakes. In fact, I can't remember what quake this was, but I had just moved into my husband's condominium after we got married. There was a really big earthquake and your sister was living at home with your mom at the time. And she called me and she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm panicking. I'm freaking out. And she basically brought a bunch of magazines over and we sat in bed and just read magazines all morning. <laughs> See, and that shocks me because I'm not afraid of earthquakes. Oh. When we were being raised, and so I'm going to have to have a conversation with my sister about this. My mom and dad, when the earth would shake, they would tell us to stomp our foot and yell at the earthquake to go away. And of course, as we said, most of them are like three to five seconds. It goes away. Look how powerful we are. That is so I funny. I was like five years old and I made earthquakes go away. Your sister obviously didn't get the memo. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> she was very afraid. I was powerful. Yeah. The only thing that just a little bit took my fear away was when I saw my number two son freaking out one day in an earthquake. And I was like, is that what I look like? <laughs> Holy crap. I was like, calm down. It's fine. <laughs> Well, in this earthquake, though, more than 9,000 people were injured and oh. 57 were killed. Yeah, it was big. If you're like Kathy and I and you enjoy a nice glass of wine, but you're not a connoisseur, let Dracaena Wines be your guide. Dracaena is the creation of Lori and Michael, a husband and wife team who both have science backgrounds. Michael is a food chemist and Lori was a microbiologist. So these two nerds did the hard work for us. <laughs> and we mean that in the most complimentary way. Most complimentary way. <laughs> My husband and I actually met Lori in Paso Robles. She was phenomenal and introduced me to her Cabernet Franc, which is to die for. They actually specialize in Cabernet Franc, Rosé and Chenin Blanc. And for the last 10 years, every vintage of their wines has received a 90 plus rating from wine enthusiasts. That's no surprise. It's so good. The name Dracaena is the genus name of the Draco tree, and Draco was the name of their beloved Weimariner. So all you dog lovers out there got to buy their wine. <laughs> because they donate to dog charities. And you will get 10% off if you use the code KILLER. And they have a wine club that's called the Chalk Club, which I love. That's named after their dog named Vegas. Right. Their second Weimariner. Exactly. And that's because in Vegas, if you're betting chalk, you are betting on all the favorites. And they are taking the gamble that once you taste their wine, like Kathy with a C did, they will become one of your favorites. Not only are their wines delicious, they're reasonably priced. So to make a purchase, go to DracaenaWines.com. D-R-A-C-A-E-N-A Wines.com. And on this site, there's a link to their weekly podcast and weekly blog posts, and you'll also find links to all of their socials. As the prosecution promised, a retrial took place. Judge Weisberg again presided. 
and prosecutors now had learned lessons from the first trial. Leading up to the trial, the judge ruled that there would be one trial and one jury for both brothers. According to an AP article published in the Daily Press in April of 1995, the defense argued for two separate trials, and the judge said, nope, common crimes, common events, common victims, and common witnesses are tried together, and this case fits the bill. But ironic, considering he didn't have that the first time. Same judge, different set of rules. Right. And Kath, what's interesting is two juries in a trial is unusual. And one of the sort of like psychological things that happens when you have your own jury, like let's say I'm the Lyle jury and then there's the... Eric. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> now we know who she like, likes The best. other guy's name. Yeah, but didn't you have the crush on Eric, not Lyle? It's I weird thought, you forgot that name. I thought Eric was very handsome. Anyway, so if I'm in the Eric jury and I'm listening to testimony that applies to both, the theory is that I'm more scrutinizing of the stuff that... They were saying about my jury, which correct. is Correct. Sort of like my defendant did that, that was your defendant, and there might be more of a tendency toward leniency. But it's just a theory. That's interesting. It's just a theory. Anyway, Judge Weisberg also took greater control over the media. He banned TV cameras from the courtroom. And as you know, the first trial had been televised. And very recently, the O.J. Simpson trial had taken place with many, many people criticizing Judge Ito. So this time, Weisberg's like, Ixnay on the Elm Fay. <laughs> no film. <laughs> EDMA, media, no media. <laughs> That's right. There you go. EDMA, exactly. So Weisberg said no TV, and he only allowed one photographer and one sketch artist in the courtroom. He ordered that blue tape be placed on the ground outside the courthouse. Now, this is in public space, and he basically said camera crews and journalists with recording devices cannot go beyond it. He also sectioned off a public space where the jury gathered in order to minimize their interaction with the journalists. He basically told journalists, like, you see this place over here? You can't go there. He also placed a gag order on the attorneys. The prosecution wanted to preclude any evidence that the Menendez brothers had been sexually molested by their father, which was obviously the heart of the defense case. Now, Kath, this case was referred to in the media as the abuse excuse. I don't remember that, but they always like like the Twinkie defense or the right. McDonald's coffee defense. Or... Like the hot coffee. Exactly. Yeah. According to an article in the L.A. Times in April of 1995, journalist Alan Abrahamson, and it's probably actually pronounced Abramson, <laughs> but there's no relation to the defense attorney. Judge Weisberg questioned whether defense attorneys were entitled to call expert witnesses who would say the brothers were battered children akin to a beaten spouse. Now, this was permitted in the first trial, but here he's kind of rethinking things. Kath, battered women's syndrome had been a topic of discussion in criminal courts for years, but it was recognized specifically in statute in California in 1991, which was two years before this trial started. Basically, the I think it's an evidence code says that you can admit expert testimony on the effects of domestic violence if it's relevant to the case. But it's my understanding that Judge Weisberg was calling into question the ability to use this abuse syndrome when it came to your offspring. According to the article, because the judge was not convinced that there were legal grounds to permit testimony on an abuse syndrome, he scheduled a hearing on that point and took testimony. In August of 1995, the judge made his ruling. 
After hearing testimony on battered person's syndrome by expert witnesses, the judge decided to allow evidence of abuse during the retrial. However, he sharply limited the defense testimony about their childhood and also limited expert testimony on that point. He basically said, look, we're not going to go through the same parade of teachers, coaches, and relatives and friends who took weeks during the first jury trial. And Kath, over the course of trial, his rulings eliminated over 30 defense witnesses who he did not permit to testify on the issue of abuse because he believed it to be cumulative and irrelevant. The judge also ruled Dr. Ozeal's audio recordings in which the defendants made statements about the killings could be used against both brothers in the second trial. At no time during the recordings did Lyle or Eric claim they were molested by their parents. The prosecution said the tape refuted their claim that the Menendez parents were killed in self-defense. And Kath, the judge granted a prosecution motion in the second trial to exclude photographs that had been used by the defense in the first trial to show that Jose Menendez molested his sons. Kath, these were photos of Eric and Lyle as children in which they were both naked. I actually saw a blurred version of the photos, and it's extremely disconcerting. They're like five, six years old, something like that. Who does that? And Kath, also the defense attorney in the case, Leslie Abramson, I'm going to call her the main defense attorney, was concerned and raised issues with Judge Weisberg and said, hey, I am concerned because of all the negative information in the press about the jurors in the OJ case. I want to make sure our jurors aren't going to be intimidated by that. It was very starkly, if you remember, drawn along the lines of race with the OJ verdict in L.A. And so because there was an acquittal, so many people were, this is outrageous. What were those jurors thinking? Those jurors were stupid. All all this kind of stuff, you know. And so the defense attorney here asked Judge Weisberg to make sure the juror didn't feel pressure. So he basically pulled all of them, meaning you ask the question something like, are any of you feeling pressure or going to be impacted by the blowback on the O.J. Simpson jury? Now, I'm sure he said it more eloquently, but they all raised (laughs) They all said, nope, not going to affect us. Opening statements in the second trial began in the afternoon of Wednesday, October 11th, 1995. According to an AP article published in the Oxnard Star, the prosecutor said, we will show you that Jose and Kitty Menendez were ambushed in a storm of gunfire. Then the prosecutor proceeded to parade before the jury the gruesome photographs of both victims. And Kath, having seen a couple of those photographs, yikes. Yeah, I didn't look specifically. I did not want to see it. I didn't mean to see them. It actually surprised me when they came up. Honestly, Kath, looking at those photos, it kind of made me think of the boogeyman. Right. Although, as you know, I actually saw the boogeyman when we were in Austin. (laughs) (laughs) And you know that. (laughs) Quick story. Kathy and I were in Austin last weekend for the True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival. (laughs) We shared a room. Something woke me up in the middle of the night. It was like this huge bang that I bolted out of sleep. And I look over and Kathy's still sleeping. Like nothing on the bed has been moved. Pillows, blanket, anything. So I'm sitting up in bed and I'm like, what was that noise? And so I'm listening to see like our alarm's going to be sounded, our people in the hallway, something like that. And I'm hearing nothing. You know, like in hotel rooms, you've got your two beds and then you've got kind of like a little hallway to the door and then the bathroom's off to the side. So I'm kind of looking at this hallway and I'm just thinking, what's going on? Did I imagine it? Was it maybe not as big a sound as I thought? 
And as I'm looking at this hallway, the light in our hallway goes off. My first thought is that there's a power outage. Austin was 187 degrees-ish. That's not even with humidity. And our air conditioner, truly, we were at a nice hotel. It was not keeping up with the heat. I think, you know, maybe it blew a transformer or something like that. I'm thinking about reaching over just to try the nightstand light when all of a sudden in this doorway that goes to the hallway, this like six foot two figure emerges, dark hair. I can't see the face on the person. I scream as loudly as I can. And this figure screams back (laughs) and it's Kathy. Basically, I got up to go to the bathroom as quietly as I possibly could. And my hair looks like Rosanna, Rosanna, Dana when I sleep. And I come out and Kathy is, she looks freakish. She's like sitting stark upright in the bed, like with her feet on the ground, staring at me. And she lets out the scream, which causes me to scream. It was like blood curdling screams at the top of our lungs at 3.30 in the morning. And the scariest part is nobody did anything. Nobody, Nothing. Nobody came and knocked on our door or called nobody us. Nobody called. Like, hey, there's been this noise. Because I'm telling you. It, it was loud. It was loud. Then <laughs> <laughs> she got mad at me for going to the bathroom. <laughs> well, I didn't get mad at you for going to the bathroom. It took me like hours to fall asleep. Like that is almost like a worst dream come true. Because as I'm looking at that hallway and see this scary yeah, figure, but- I assumed that loud noise was yeah. somebody breaking into our door. Right. But here's the thing. There was no loud noise. It just shows you what happens to our brain in our sleep. Right. And you said I look like I was almost as tall as the ceiling. Yes, it was the shadows. This person looks huge. You were taller than my nephew at that point, and he's 6'4". That's funny. Like, seriously. But here's the other thing, too, is the next night, you're not getting away with them not hearing this, too. I don't remember this, but go ahead. So I like to fall asleep with the TV on, and I always turn on the sleep oh. timer. <laughs> I didn't even know there was a timer on a TV clicker because I never fall asleep with the TV. Except I told her the night before and clearly she never listens to me. I don't. I don't. I don't. I'm sorry. What? (laughs) Anyway, I am woken up to the feel of somebody's hand on my inner thigh. (laughs) Because apparently she was reaching for the clicker to turn the TV off. But all I am thinking is... Oh my God, someone's in our room. And I was like, I woke up and I'm like, okay, turn the TV off. And I see the clicker very precariously located. And I felt like the like the kid in the that game operation where you have to like get the bones out. You without, failed. Yeah. And so I like I reach over slowly and I get the clicker. And I rub the inside of a guy. Oh my God. I have never seen Caddy jump to high alert <laughs> so quickly. Oh my God. I was like, I'm just turning off the TV now. Okay, so that's what that reminds me of. Right. I have seen the boogeyman. The boogeyman is real. There you go. The boogeyman's name is Kathy with a C. (laughs) Twice. Okay, so back to our story. I don't know how to go back to this part of the story, to be honest with you. Let's get serious now, Kathy. Oh, we're talking about opening statement. Oh, the photos of them as children. Yes. Okay, so now we are at that. So those get excluded. Moving on to opening statements. These began in the afternoon of Wednesday, October 11th, 1995. According to an AP article published in the Oxnard Star, the prosecutor said that they would show that Jose and Kitty Menendez were ambushed in a storm of gunfire. Then the prosecutor proceeded to parade before the jury the gruesome photographs of both victims. So, Kath, right from the beginning, the prosecutor was going hard. He was showing enlarged photographs of the crime scene and their bodies, and he was basically vilifying Lyle and Eric immediately. And in an opening statement, 
other attorneys don't typically interrupt. You basically have kind of wide latitude to explain to the jury what evidence they can expect to see. But I guess this prosecutor mentioned the word slaughter like three times. So Leslie Abramson jumps up and says, look, this use of the word slaughter, this is argumentative. And the judge basically said sustained. And he turned to the jury and he said, this is about what the evidence is going to show. And so he kind of toned it down. But right away, the prosecutor knew he had to bring in the most gruesome evidence and fight as hard as he could for these victims. And he knew that a lot of the pretrial rulings had gone in his favor. The prosecution played one of Dr. Ozeal's recordings at the very beginning of trial. The tape included a statement from Lyle that he would not kill their mother without Eric's consent. So he let him sleep on it for a couple days. Later, Lyle said on the tape, you miss not having those people around. And I miss not having my dog around if I can make such a gross analogy. So obviously, the prosecutor is trying to engender disgust from the jury by publishing these statements that Lyle said to Dr. Ozeal. According to LA Times journalist Ann W. O'Neill, Eric spent 15 days on the witness stand during the retrial. He said he had been sexually abused since the age of six, and his mother knew of the sexual abuse, but did nothing to intervene. Eric underwent nine days of scathing cross-examination from the prosecution, wherein he admitted that he and his brother did the killings, he admitted to the cover-up, he admitted to the purchasing of the shotguns, and he admitted to the spending spree afterwards. He admitted to calling an attorney shortly after their parents' death to make sure that he and his brother were still in the will. A lot of incriminating things Eric admitted to. Lyle was one of the star defense witnesses during the first trial, but in the second trial, he did not testify. According to this article that I previously mentioned, it was because prosecutors had developed damaging evidence against him. However, the article didn't specify what the damaging evidence was. In the second trial, Lyle relied on the testimony of his brother, Eric, who portrayed him as a protector, but also someone who was abused by his father and feared their parents. While on the stand, Eric testified that he blamed himself for destroying Lyle's life. Kath, apparently he felt bad that he told Lyle that he was still being abused by the father, like he couldn't handle it himself. And the outcome, of course, was the parent's death. Because of his decision not to testify, Lyle presented no direct evidence of his perceived fear of his parents at the time of the killings. Consequently, the trial court ruled that Lyle failed to lay the foundation for the introduction of expert testimony to support his contention that he killed his parents with an honest, even if it was unreasonable, belief for the need for self-defense. Following that, the most devastating ruling occurred shortly before closing argument. Judge Weisberg said he would not give the jury instruction that he gave in the first trial of imperfect self-defense, nor would he give a manslaughter instruction as an option for the jury in the killing of Kitty Menendez. Now, this was brutal. So what happened was in the first trial, the imperfect self-defense instruction was given. And basically, imperfect self-defense was a theory in California that defendants can have a genuine, even if it's unreasonable, fear of imminent death or great bodily injury. If you have a genuine fear, even if it's unreasonable, a defendant who kills can only be found guilty of manslaughter, not murder. 
Judge Weisberg looked at the concept of imminent danger and what, what does that mean? And imminent means something that must be dealt with immediately or must appear so at the time of the killing. Judge Weisberg believed the Menendez brothers presented insufficient evidence that they were in imminent danger. Judge Weisberg decided that on the night of the killing, the brothers could not legitimately claim that they had an honest but unreasonable belief that Kitty Menendez posed an imminent danger to them. Judge Weisberg placed special emphasis on Eric's testimony that Eric was aware of the danger happening in the future. For example, Eric said he and Lyle believed their parents were going to kill them that night. And the two boys had to get to the den as quickly as possible before his father left the den. He said that they believed that their own killing was going to occur once the father left the den. Eric testified, if my dad got out of the den before I got to him, it was over. So by this, the judge says Eric is admitting that the danger was something in the future. He knew his parents could not kill him through the walls. Judge Weisberg said, as to Jose, your options are murder one, murder two, manslaughter, or acquittal. For Kitty, it was murder one, murder two, or acquittal. The defense is devastated because for Kitty, the lowest possible crime was murder two. So this was an exponential amount of time that they were facing in prison because they already admitted to pulling the triggers. Also, the jury was tasked with finding out whether special circumstances existed that could bring the death penalty. One of them was lying in wait, and one of them was a special circumstance of multiple murders. The jury got the case on March 1st, 1996, but one juror became ill and an alternate had to step in after two weeks. Now, Kath, as you know, if an alternate needs to replace a juror while deliberations are going on, the deliberations will start over with this new juror. After four full days of deliberation, this new jury rendered their verdict. According to journalist Jeanette DeSantis of the Los Angeles Daily News, on March 20th, 1996, the eight men, four women jury found both brothers guilty of first degree murder conspiracy to commit murder, and a finding of special circumstances for lying in wait and multiple murders. And you know what was interesting, Kathy, just as a side note, throughout their first and now second trials, the Menendez brothers always had a lot of family members supporting them in the courtroom with them. At the time of the verdict, the brothers had been in prison for six years awaiting trial. On July 2nd, 1996, based on the jury's recommendation, Judge Weisberg sentenced the brothers to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Just a couple of years later, in February 1998, the California Court of Appeal upheld the brothers' murder convictions, and just three months after that, the Supreme Court of California declined to review the case, thus allowing the decision of the appellate court to stand. Both brothers tried federal appeals and habeas corpus petitions, but they were all unsuccessful. The California Department of Corrections separated the brothers and sent them to different prisons. They were considered maximum security inmates, so they were segregated from Gen Pop, a term I learned from prison break. (laughs) (laughs) That means general population for those of you who need to go watch prison break. They remained in separate prisons until February 2018, when Lyle was moved from Northern California to San Diego County, where Eric was housed. 
They were housed in separate units, but two months after Lyle's arrival, they were moved to the same housing unit, reuniting for the first time since their trial nearly 22 years earlier. The brothers burst into tears and hugged each other at their first meeting in the housing unit. In April of 2023, so just five months ago, 27 years after the Menendez brothers were convicted, new evidence came to light. According to journalist Christy Karras of the Los Angeles Times, a documentary was filmed regarding the Puerto Rican boy band Menudo. One of the former band members, Roy Rossello, who is now an adult, pointed to a photograph of a man who molested, drugged, and raped him when he was just a 14-year-old band member. The man in the photo was the head of RCA Records at the time, Jose Menendez. While working on an unrelated story, two journalists, Mary Inklin and Robert Rand, made the connection between Rosello and Menendez. Journalist Rand made a call to the prison and told Lyle and Eric he found a witness who was abused by their father. This newly discovered witness, Roy Rosello, made his allegations public in April of 2023. This new witness undercut the prosecution's position that the sexual abuse did not happen, and new defense attorneys kicked into action, filing a petition for a writ of habeas corpus just a few weeks later. Kath, ultimately, the defense is hoping for a new trial. However, the discovery of this new witness was not the only new evidence that was included in the habeas corpus petition. Andy Cano, now this was Lyle and Eric's cousin who testified at both trials in support of their contention of abuse, died of a drug overdose in 2003. Years later, I mean years later, his mother was going through his things and found a letter that Eric had written to his cousin Andy in December 1988, eight months before Jose and Kitty were killed. According to the May 2023 petition for writ of habeas corpus filed by the Menendez attorneys, Andy's mother gave the letter to a journalist, Robert Rand. Rand was a journalist who followed the Menendez trial and case very closely, and he was the one who made the connection between the Menudo band member and Jose Menendez. In 2018, journalist Rand gave the letter to Lyle's appellate attorney. At this point, Kath, this is a brand new attorney to the case. His appellate attorney is working with him for years and years and years, and he's appointed by the court because by this time, their money is gone. The appellate attorney gets the letter and doesn't recognize it as evidence that was presented in the case, and it turns out he is correct. This letter from Andy Cano's mother had never been presented in either trial. And this letter from Eric to Andy says, in part, quote, I've been trying to avoid dad. It's still happening, Andy, but it's worse for me now. I can't explain it. He's so overweight that I can't stand to see him. I never know when it's going to happen and it's driving me crazy. Every night I stay up thinking he might come in. I need to put it out of my mind. I know what you said before, but I'm afraid. You just don't know dad like I do. He's crazy. He's warned me a hundred times about telling anyone, especially Lyle. Am I a serious wimpus? I don't know. I'll work through this. I can handle it, Andy. I need to stop thinking about it. So the discovery of this letter is important 
because long before Eric had a reason to lie, this letter corroborated allegations of sexual abuse by his father. And as we said, in the second trial, Judge Weisberg severely limited the testimony and would not allow a substantial number of witnesses and evidence to come in. The judge also excluded evidence of an essay that then 14-year-old Lyle wrote for school years and years before his parents' killing, entitled, I Will Change Your Verdict. And it's about a man on death row for killing the person, the man who had sexually molested his 12-year-old son. Also at the second trial, the prosecutor kind of took a different approach than from the first trial. In the first trial, they said, hey, if you believe they're molested, you still have to find for murder. In the second trial, the prosecutor called Andy Cano a liar. He said the molestation did not happen. He called the defendants liars. He characterized the sexual abuse as a total fabrication, saying that Lyle and Eric could not corroborate the allegations. The prosecutor said Jose Menendez was not the kind of man that would be abusing his sons. He was restrained and forgiving, not brutal. Ultimately, the current attorneys hope that the judge will allow a new jury to hear all of the evidence, including the essay Lyle wrote in school, the newly discovered letter by Eric to Andy, and the corroborative testimony of the other rape victim, Roy Rossello. In support of the May 2023 habeas petition, Roy Rossello signed a written statement under the penalty of perjury. The statement said that in 1983, when Roy was 13 years old, he joined the boy band Menudo. In the fall of 1983 or 1984, Menudo was appearing in New York City. And during this trip, a Menudo manager asked Roy to do a favor, instructing him to go downstairs at the hotel and join Jose Menendez in a limousine. Roy did so and was taken to a home in New Jersey, given wine by Jose Menendez and anally raped. Roy lost consciousness and woke up back in his hotel. He was bleeding and in unbearable pain for a week. In a separate incident, Jose Menendez orally copulated Roy in a bathroom prior to a concert in New York. Later that same night, Jose Menendez again anally raped Roy in a hotel room. In response to this habeas petition, that Los Angeles District Attorney was ordered by a judge to respond to the defendant's petition within 30 days. The DA's office requested additional time to file a response, which the judge granted, and as of this recording in September 2023, no response has yet been filed. We will update you on this. When journalist Robert Rand delivered the news about the Menudo singer being abused by Jose Menendez, Rand asked Eric how it made him feel. Eric said, I, frankly, to be honest, I feel horrible. It's sad to know there's another victim of my father. You know, I always hoped and believed that one day the truth about my dad would come out, but I never wished it would come out like this, the result of trauma that another child suffered, and it makes me very sad. Lyle said, it was pretty overwhelming to hear that. We've heard rumors over the years that something might have happened with Menudo through the years. It's remarkable that it happened so many decades later. Of course, you know that would have made a difference at trial. Certainly, that would have made an enormous difference because the entire trial centered on the belief in these events. As of September of 2023, Lyle and Eric Menendez have been incarcerated for 33 years. Thanks for listening. 
Hope you enjoy the story as much as we enjoyed telling it. (laughs) Rate us, review us, Mm -hmm. and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Only five stars are allowed. Remember that. (laughs) 